In Acts chapter 8, there's a story about a man named Philip who's told by an angel of the Lord to go on a journey. And as he's going on this journey, he runs into someone on the side of the road uh, from Ethiopia. And he finds out that this man that's on the side of the road is, is reading a book. And uh, this guy's kind of a big deal. This person on the side of the road from Ethiopia is actually the treasurer for the queen of Ethiopia. Really big deal. Um, Philip comes up near him and finds out that the person is, is reading and as Philip gets closer, Philip recognizes the words that are being read aloud, and they're ancient words from an ancient book. And the words uh, that Philip hears sparks a question, which sparks a conversation. And these ancient words are talking about Jesus. And Philip and this Ethiopian start to, to talk about what the words mean, and Philip explains to him the good news of Jesus coming into the world. And what we find from this conversation that sparks it, the Ethiopian, who's super interested, all of a sudden decides he wants more of this. They have more of a conversation, and the Ethiopian uh, hears the message of Jesus, accepts the message of Jesus, and before we know it, Philip's baptizing the Ethiopian. Really powerful story that happens in Acts chapter 8. And it, it seems to happen very quickly, this conversation between Philip and the Ethiopian. Um, what's interesting is that these ancient words that the Ethiopian uh, is reading are out of the book of Isaiah. Out of the book of Isaiah, these powerful words about who Jesus is. What's also interesting is that these words written by Isaiah were written some 500 years before, the, before Jesus ever walks on this earth. There's something powerful about the words of Isaiah. And we see it again and again in the New Testament where there are these references back to this Old Testament book, this Old Testament story about this Old Testament prophet named Isaiah. Again and again, the New Testament references it. There's something powerful about all of Scripture, but there's something specifically about this book of Isaiah that is uh, uh, very interesting and intriguing to me. Why does this book keep coming back up in the New Testament? Jesus quotes it, as we talked about last week. John the Baptist quotes it as he starts his ministry. Here we have just this random person on the side of the road reading it, and what we find is this amazing story comes out of these words from Isaiah. We started a series last week to, to go through these words of Isaiah, to talk about what, it, what is Isaiah saying to God's people, both in the context of when he was saying it, and then what does it mean for us today? Isaiah, the name, the very name Isaiah means the Lord saves. And this is a prophet. And as Isaiah is writing, what we find is that he has hopeful expectations for God's people in this world. He has hopeful expectations for what God's doing in the midst of extremely difficult circumstances. And we wanted to talk about what are Isaiah's hopeful expectations? What do those mean for us now? What do they mean for Desert City Church? As Isaiah talks about these hopeful expectations, he starts to, to talk ahead and say, here's what God's about to do in history. And he starts to point towards this servant of God who is going to come into the world. And he starts to describe Jesus very clearly. And as we read these words, what we find is, uh, is that he's making these, these predictions. God's saying, I'm about to intervene into the world, and there's this thing in the future that you can look forward to. The Savior is coming. And he so eloquently and accurately describes what's happening that this old church father Jerome said this about Isaiah. He said, Isaiah could really be the fifth evangelist. 
said he should really be called an evangelist, not just a prophet, because he describes all the mysteries of Christ in the church so clearly that you would not just think that he's prophesying about what is to come. It's almost like he's uh, writing a history about something that has already happened. 500 years before the time of Christ, we have Isaiah saying, here's what God's going to do. He's intervening. This is what Jesus will look like. This is what Jesus will do. Very interesting words from Isaiah. They have great meaning for the context for which it's written in and then for God's people throughout history. These hopeful expectations of what God is doing in this world in and through his people. And as we've looked at uh, Isaiah, uh, I broke it down last week, that the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, you could almost call it first Isaiah. He wrote these first 39 chapters uh, to the southern kingdom who was being oppressed by the Assyrians, this really terrible, uh, violent group of people. And he was warning the people of God to change their ways, that these Assyrians were coming and it wasn't going to be good. And sure enough, the Assyrians come in, they conquer, they destroy And then after about chapter 39, from chapters 40 to 66, you might even call it 2nd Isaiah, we have the story of what happens after the exile, what happens after the destruction. When they come back and they get their land again and decide, here's what our future has to hold. How do we we rebuild from the ashes of the destruction? And the second half of Isaiah is extremely hopeful that God has not given up on people. And that God is moving in the midst of pain and brokenness and destruction for something good. There's a a poem I want to focus on today that's found in Isaiah chapter 41. And here are the words. It says, The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the Lord, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. I will put in the desert the cedar and the acacia and the myrtle and the olive. I will set junipers in the wasteland, the fir and the cypress together so that people may see and know and may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. Beautiful imagery. We're desert people. We live in the desert. Some of this language really resonates with us. It really makes sense, especially coming off of a hot summer, not seeing rain for a while. You hear the imagery of this and and the idea that, that God would make rivers flow. One translation says that he would open up rivers in places where there is no water, in barren heights, springs within the valley, to bring about pools of water. Earlier we saw that picture of the canal um, I know here in Phoenix, we've had a river. We kind of rerouted it. Uh, but it, it, like for us, it's not like we're, we're around like a, a really just lush uh, for vegetation area. We're in the middle of a desert. There's like 4 million people or more in Phoenix. That can't be a good idea, but we do it. We've figured out how to live here. Um, and we love it. And we love it for like nine months out of the year. We love it. It's It's paradise. But Jesus, but God intervenes. He does this. He makes rivers flow in the barren wasteland. There's a couple of things I think we learn about this passage about us and God. And the first is, in verse 17, it starts off with this, the poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst. And the first thing that I, I realize in this is that he's talking to God's people. 
uh, Isaiah. And, and the first point is that God's, God's people are not exempt from poverty and pain when we hear this. He's writing to a people who've lost everything. He's writing to a people whose homes have been destroyed, who've been exiled, whose dreams have come crashing down. God's people are not exempt from poverty and pain. We live in a world where we suffer. Those who are with God suffer. Those who are not with God suffer. Life's tough. Life's exhausting. We live in a world where uh, it's relentless. We go through all sorts of disappointments. We go through brokenness, broken relationships, the loss of job, financial stress, physical ailments. We suffer. There's no promise that we're just not going to suffer, that we're going to go through life without poverty and pain. God's people aren't exempt from that. Uh, this week I was uh, listening to an interview between Stephen Colbert and Anderson Cooper. And I don't know what you think about Stephen Colbert. Um, he's funny, and, and you may agree with him, disagree with him. He said some stuff in this interview that I just thought were really, really good. They were talking about kind of his upbringing and some of the things that he had experienced as a child that were absolutely devastating, losing his father, losing his brother, two of his brothers, um, just significant pain that he went through. And Anderson Cooper kept, kept kind of pushing him on how, uh, how hopeful he is in the midst of experiencing devastating things. And one thing that, that Stephen said was, uh, the, these trials that we face, the pain that we go through, can actually be gifts. And Anderson said, gifts? How, how can you say that those are gifts? And, and Stephen said, I've learned to love the worst things that have happened to me. I've learned to love the worst things that have happened to me. He said, I'm not happy that they've happened. I'm not happy that I've gone through them. But I've learned to love them because something has happened to me as I have suffered. And he starts to talk about these different things that he's experienced through the midst of going through tragedy, through the midst of going through pain. It has opened him up to understand what other people go through when they suffer. And he said, it has built this connection with me to relate with people who suffer. Suffering has a way of uniting us. Going through difficult things, it it opens us up to empathy and compassion and kindness. And Stephen Colbert was talking about how this has allowed him to experience life very differently. And and, and in in a way, it was a painful gift because it has put him in touch with his humanity and the humanity of others. There's brokenness here. And we can suffer together well. And Anderson Cooper kept talking about and saying, "How, how do you deal with this with your faith and Stephen Colbert is a Catholic, but he, he said this at kind of the end of the interview, which I thought was so interesting. He said, in my tradition, in the Christian tradition, he said, that's the great gift of the sacrifice of Christ, is that God suffers too. We're not alone. God suffers too. The poor and needy are in search of water. God's people aren't exempt from the pain of this world. We go through pain. We go through suffering. And in our tradition and in our story, the story of Jesus, we have a story of this servant Savior that comes into the earth and he suffers on the cross. We have this God who who loses his child, who understands what that's like to go through the pain of something that devastating. Our God suffers with us because he has suffered for us. This story of the world that we live in, the poor and the needy search for water. This is the story of life. And here's the next phrase that comes is that It says this, the poor and the needy are in search for water, but the Lord will answer them. The God of Israel will not forsake them. In the midst of this suffering, it says that God will respond. As reading through this passage over and over this week, as I was thinking about 
this sermon in, in this phrase. You may want to underline it, circle it. I, the God of Israel, I, the Lord, will answer them. There was something so powerful about that statement, that this is the good news of the gospel, that in our pain and our need and our suffering, God says, not only do I hear them, but I will answer them, and I will do something about it. I, the Lord, will answer them. The Holy One of Israel, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. God intervenes on our behalf. In the midst of our poor and needy, thirsting souls, God responds. God doesn't just leave us to our suffering and our pain and our poverty. God's doing something, going, doing something about it. The poem goes on. Oh, so point number two is that God will answer and respond to people. Verse 18 and 19 then says this. I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. I will put in the desert the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, the olive. I will set junipers in the wasteland, the fir and the cypress together. So there's a lot of words there, and uh, I don't know a whole lot about trees. We don't have a lot of trees here in Phoenix. Um, I know that Tim has a mesquite tree that he's been in, in like a war with. Uh, <laughs> finally got something done about it this weekend, I think. We have Palo Verde trees. Where they're actually weeds. They just... They, they start as weeds and they grow into trees. Um, but he starts to talk about the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, the olive. I don't think those are necessarily desert trees. God's just placing something in the desert that can't live, and then God's giving it life. God says, I'll make rivers flow on barren heights. The response where God says, I will answer them, I will not forsake them. Uh, point number three says, God doesn't just answer with provision. He answers with miraculous, abundant life. He doesn't just answer with provision, but he answers here with miraculous and abundant life. God hears the poor and the needy who are crying out for water, and he does something about it. And then what it describes what he does is this outpouring of water and this planting of trees in a place where neither of them should be found. God responds to our need, not only with provision, but with abundant life. Now there's something here going on with our soul uh, there's something spiritual happening as God, God sees our soul and its weariness and responds with eternal life. He sees our soul that, that feels like it's, it's just parched, that it's starving, that it's in desperate need, and he pours life eternal into it. This is what we find with some of the language of Jesus. In John chapter 7, there's these beautiful words um, talking about the idea of, of water living water. John chapter 7. Jesus says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, streams of living water will flow from within him. So this idea of, 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 of streams that we see physically, this metaphor, is actually something happening inside of us spiritually, that in Jesus, in this relationship with Christ, when we believe in him like this Ethiopian on the side of the road, all of a sudden, God pours his eternal life into our soul. And it's not just something that refreshes us, it's something that flows out of us for others as well. Jesus says that he is the living water. But there's also something more than just spiritual that, that's happening that connects us eternally with God. 
But these people who are, have lost everything and are rebuilding their homes, all of a sudden God is empowering them with the miraculous abundant life to rebuild their homes. That in a place of desolation and a, a place of, of barrenness, all of a sudden life is springing forth. Miraculous, abundant life. And God's people are helping bring about this life here on earth. And then this idea of trees, these trees that are sprouting up at a place where they're not supposed to grow. What do trees do? They offer shade, they offer shelter, they give us fruit. They give us fruit that reproduces. They give us fruit that feeds. Trees have all sorts of purposes. We build things out of them. Trees offer life as well. Trees come from water, which God gives. But they represent something. These are multiple different trees popping up in the desert where they're not supposed to be any. There's something miraculous and reproducing happening in this story. That the work of God that he's doing, there's something about it that has very physical implications for the here and now, as well as something that's happening spiritual, spiritually. We think about our work as a church, Desert City Church. Uh, when we had the calling to, to start this church in this area of North Phoenix, um, we found uh, a place that had been kind of on our radar. My wife and I grew up here, um, had been watching this community and had seen how uh, there's been a number of churches who've tried to come in here. So many of them got swept out uh, with the economy in 08. Um, most of us know that story of how painful that was. Um, it, but for whatever reason, churches haven't been able to stick in this part of town. We've read about 14 different churches that have tried to come here. You might say this is a wasteland for the church. For whatever reason, nothing can stick and be sustained. And yet we believe that there, when we started Desert City, so much of our name that, that something would grow in the midst of a city in a place where nothing else has been able to grow. We just felt like God was saying, we can do this. We need a church here. We need an expression of the body of Christ. And if it happens, it's going to look miraculous. Something will be planted here that will create shade and shelter and fruit and will reproduce and will be here long after we are. We believe that this is part of this calling uh, to be a part of this church in North Phoenix that God responds to the need, not just with provision, but with abundant life, water, trees. And then finally, verse 20, it says this, so that people may see and know and may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. And I thought this was so interesting. It's not just that God intervenes, and it's not just that he does this miraculous thing where he gives life abundantly to his people, but when he does it in such a way miraculously, he gets the glory. It's, it's something that, that his name is made great. His fame is expanded. God's fame increases through our faithfulness, the faithfulness of his people. And it's something that, it's so miraculous, this work of God, that people could say, only God did this. This couldn't have happened unless the presence of God were with these people. Because things don't grow here. Things don't grow in this desolate place. I want to be a part of those kind of stories. That God does something so miraculous in our community that it couldn't have happened without him. And that people would know there must be something real about those people. I uh, meet with a lot of different pastors throughout the week. It's what pastors do Monday through Friday. We meet and talk. Um, but I'm in a couple different groups where we actually get together and we, 
we talk a lot about kind of our, our different congregations. We talk a lot about just praying some of the needs in the city, uh, what churches are working in what areas. And um, there's really great camaraderie with, with pastors here. Um, but, but so many of them are just always shocked that, that we've made it as far as we have in this community. They say, De- desert, people don't ever go more than like two years there. If you guys have gone five years, something good is happening. For us individually and corporately, when we allow God to pour abundant life into us, it creates a faithful witness of who God is and his goodness in this world. God's fame increases through our faithfulness. This has a couple meanings for uh, both us individually and corporately. The first is, uh, the pastor Ray Ortland was commentating on this passage about God pouring water, planting trees into a community that was desperate, into a community that was thirsty, crying out for him to, to revive the souls of people. And he says this, I thought this was great. He says, water outpoured symbolizes bountiful salvation overflowing with the Holy Spirit. When thirsty people seek water and prayer, God answers with the greatest gift in the universe, himself in his immediacy and fullness. He promises not just a morning dew or a light sprinkling, but rivers and fountains and pools and springs. And we need that much of God. Life is exhausting and we are often dry. But God more than compensates with himself. By refreshing us, God increases his own glory. The outflowing of his renewing grace opens people's minds to see, to know, to consider, and to understand how good he really is. That's why he pours out refreshment from heaven and serves his purposes by enjoying, uh, and we serve his purposes by enjoying his abundant goodness in the sight of the nations. Therefore, seek this outpouring. Embrace this fullness. Experience God. The most convincing witness in a truth-denying world is not an apologetic argument of our own brilliance, but the most convincing answer to our times is the manifest presence of God in our midst. To seek God, to experience him, to come to him with our thirsty souls and say, Lord, we need you, and allow God's presence to just pour out into us. God wants to do this. Last week we talked about God is the giver of life, and he wants to pour life into you. It's your life, it's your marriage, it's your family. Life is exhausting and we need that. But then this means something else for us as a church as well. If God brings life to desolate places and if he makes things grow miraculously where nothing else grows, I believe that he's going to do something with us in this church. We've been meeting in a school cafeteria and it's the best of times and the worst of times. I can't wait till we get to the day where we look back at that and say, how sweet was that day when we used to meet there? But we don't want to meet here forever. Our hope is to find something where we would find an established home for Desert City so that we could be a faithful presence and a life-giving presence for the future. That we would create shade and shelter and fruit that would reproduce and that it would outlive us. So one of the things that we've done now that we're five years old is we've started the next steps to look for a more permanent home, a more permanent facility. This summer, we've opened up a building fund, a building campaign, and we're really excited about it. And we've been kind of slowly walking this thing out as we're trying to get as much information as we can, and we don't have all the answers yet. We're still identifying what the goals are, the targets, 
what exactly we need, but we know that we need to start now. And as we consider the area of town that we're in and how hard it's been for churches to be here, what we've realized is that we need an Isaiah chapter 41 type of story. That God would make something grow here, that he would bring about abundant life in a way that's so miraculous that only God can do it. And it won't be from our own achievement, but it will create a witness to his goodness to his people here and now. So this week we're going to be sending out a document that kind of lays out kind of our hopes and dreams of starting this campaign. It would be nice to say we know exactly what the target is, we know exactly how much we need resource-wise, and we're going for it. But we don't have that yet. But what we do have is the idea that we know that we need to start funding this account as a church. Five years into a church plant, we've created this healthy, sustainable foundation. We're operating within the black in our budget, um, and God has been good. And it's time for the next phase. It's time for the next thing. As we talk about this, we, we don't want to just do this for the sake of ourselves. We want this to be a life-giving place for the community, a place where people who are thirsty experience God, God's abundant blessing and outpouring. And I believe that when this happens, God will get the glory. When you come here to Desert City and you meet in this cafeteria, I believe something sacred happens. I think that the Spirit of the Lord is with us, that this that what we do here matters. And I want more people to know about it. And I want it to, to live on um, and to grow. And I think that our community needs it. Every single thing that you do, just to be here, we're so grateful. Uh, to, to come to a cafeteria that sometimes smells like spoiled milk, that sometimes the air conditioning doesn't work, and to connect with others. Uh, just to be here, we're so grateful. Um, as we're building this together, what we know is that uh, we all come from different stories. We all come from different promptings of, of God. But it's going to take a lot of faithfulness, and it's going to take a lot of sacrifice. And as we get ready for this next phase, one of the things that we think that we've identified is, as we're not exactly sure how much we need, we know that we need to start raising enough for some sort of a down payment for something. We've realize that with where we're at in, in uh, this community, um, it's, we, we'd like to take out a mortgage if we can find a permanent home because we're spending a lot of money on rent to use this for one day out of the month. And if we had a place that we could leverage for the community throughout the week, um, that we just feel like there'd be so much more that we can do. Um, so we're not going to take out something that's ridiculous. Uh, we don't want to take out something that's going to completely burden us but we want to take out something that we are able to use throughout the week to minister to this community. Um, so this next step, the first step of this uh, building fund that we're entering into is for a down payment. And our hope is that we could raise everything that we would need as a church. Um, and we don't know what God can do, but we know that this is our next step for us. And so we're hoping over the next uh, year, we're kind of even not even putting a huge timeline on it, to, to raise somewhere between 350 to, to 500,000, um, and I know uh, that, that might sound like a lot for a church of our uh, size, that might not sound like a lot, we're not sure what God's going to do, but one of the things that we would ask that you would do is to prayerfully consider in what ways to participate. Um, we operate off the budget of your giving, we try to be good stewards of that, so don't just pull away from that and start putting it to the building fund, that's not what we're asking, uh, we, we need that. Um, but maybe if you, if you haven't give, given yet, and it's, it, this is something you feel called to, we, 
We have this fund available. You can give online, or you can give through check, but designating that for the building fund. Um, or maybe you're connected with people uh, who you know can get things done like this in this part of town. And our hope would be that you would, you would share our story of who we are with them. Um, we pray that you would prayerfully consider in which ways that we can contribute and, and, and participate in this. Um, I think that, that, that God uses uh, un uncanny situations um, with unassuming people all the time. And, uh, and, and our hope is that, that, that God would do something through us, a humble people at Desert City Church. We're not sure what that will be. Um, but we believe that God's going to do something miraculous through us. So this uh, document will be going out this week. Um, and if you have any questions, uh, we, we want to be transparent and say, we don't have all the answers, but we do have some answers. And so feel free to talk to us about it. And we'd love to just do this together and keep building together. Eugene Peterson says this about uh, this passage, his paraphrase. When God does this abundant work through a place that's thirsty, a place that's parched, when he pours life into it, he says, everyone will see this. No one can miss it. It's unavoidable, the indisputable evidence that I, God, personally did this. It created, I created it, it's created and signed by the Holy One of Israel. This makes God famous in this place. I'm excited to be a part of this journey. I've never been more excited about our church community. I've loved the last five years. I'm excited about the next five. I think that's going to be challenging and fun, and we're going to see God work in all sorts of different ways. I love that all of you are a part of this. Even though we're not super polished, even though we don't got all the programs figured out, we're building this together. We're co-founders of this expression of the body of Christ here in North Phoenix, and we're so grateful. Let's keep allowing God to pour into us, individually and corporately, and let's bring abundant life to this community. We're going to end today with... A time of communion, and we do this each week. And for us, communion represents God saying, I will answer them. Communion represents a God who sees the brokenness of our community, that a God who sees the need, the thirst, and intervenes. The story of the gospel is that, that Jesus entered into the world, he moved into the neighborhood, and he broke himself open on the cross. And he poured his blood out, shed his blood on the cross. We come to the table and we do this thing, this is a symbolic act of the act of God in this world. That the body of Christ was broken on the cross. We take a piece of bread that represents that body. And we take a cup of juice that represents the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross. We believe that the breaking open of God's body, the pouring out of his blood, brings about life eternal. As the body of Christ, this expression here, we do the same. We break ourselves open and we pour ourselves out so that God's work can be done. So today, as we come to the communion table, let God refresh your heart and refresh your soul. And may you consider how God is using us, calling us to a life that's bigger than ourselves, calling us to a life where we're part of eternal things to build a church community. As we come to the table, let us meet with God. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for this day. I thank you for passages of uh, your goodness, a reminder, Lord, that you, you bring about life in places that seem impossible to have life. You heal and restore us physically, spiritually, emotionally. 
what you're doing with us individually, Lord, you're doing on a much grander scale as well. We're grateful for your church. Lord, it's about people. It's about souls who are journeying together. We're grateful that you've allowed us to meet in a public school to declare who you are, your truth, and your gospel. Lord, we want to give our lives to things that last, to be a part of building something that outlives all of us. And as we're entering into this phase as a church, Lord, we uh, enter it uh, with, uh, with both fear and excitement, with both uh, apprehension and uh, courage. And we know that being a part of a, a church plant is a sacred calling. But we'd ask that you would move in us in ways that are miraculous. That you would make a way in the desert for this community. That streams of flowing water would come. Or that you would plant trees in the desert to offer shade, to offer shelter, to offer fruit. Lord, that we would see in, your, in our day a great work as you have done so much in the past. So we just pray that you would just pour out your spirit on us today, Lord. That you would empower us to be your church. That you would give us a vision for the future. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.